please take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're in Acts 17 uh, again this morning, the back half of the book. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 926. The title of the sermon is The Resurrection of the Dead, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are Areopagus, false, uh, Areopagus, resurrection, and false religion. Or if you just hear the, even the word religious there. I don't know that false religion is going to occur all that much, but religious, false religion, so there's technically four there. But Areopagus, resurrection, and something about religion uh, will be our key words for our worshipers in training this morning. Uh, Just northwest of the city of Athens, Greece, is a small hill covered in stone seats. Uh, The rulers of Athens would use this location to hold trials and engage in debates and discuss important matters of philosophy and theology and law. The name given to this small hill was, of course, Areopagus, which is a combination of the Greek words Ares, for the, the name of their god of war, and their word for hill. The Areopagus then literally is the hill of Ares. By the time of Paul and the early Christian church, this location was under Roman control, and so this spot was also known as Mars Hill. Mars being the, the name for Ares in Roman mythology. The name Areopagus, however, was used in Paul's day mostly in reference not to the hill, but to the council that met on the hill. So Paul's address in Acts 17 uh, is both at the Areopagus and in front of the Areopagus. But we need to back up. Prior to his being brought before the council of the Areopagus, Paul you recall from last week, had arrived in Athens after he had been run out of Berea by the rabble from among the Thessalonians. We saw this in 17, 13 through 15. Leaving Berea, we saw that he was conducted over to Athens, which is where we find him today. And he's waiting there for Silas and Timothy. He had asked that they be brought to him as soon as possible. While waiting, Paul spends his time, as he pretty much always did in a new city, reasoning in the synagogue uh, with the Jews and devout Greeks. But he also, here in this place, we're told, is reasoning in the marketplace every day with those who would listen. So on the Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue, and during the week, he is in the marketplace. And he's teaching them about Jesus and the resurrection. One author writes of the Areopagus, One of the long-established tasks of the council of the Areopagites was to examine the proofs that a herald might offer in support of his claim that a new deity existed. That role continued into the Roman period. If the council were so persuaded, then the god or goddess would be admitted to the pantheon. And so it seems that As we'll read in just a moment, when Paul is brought before the Areopagus, he is being invited to present a defense about this new deity 
or perhaps deities. Jesus and the resurrection, they perhaps seemingly mistook as a second God. But of course, Paul is not interested in merely introducing the council to some unknown deity that he had discovered that he, he thought they should add to their existing pantheon of gods. Rather, he uses this opportunity before the Areopagus to proclaim to them the one true and living God to whom they owe the entirety of their existence, and he calls them to repent in light of coming judgment. So let's read these verses. Uh, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, I'll read all the way to the end of the chapter, then I will give an outline and we will uh, get ourselves to work on this passage. Acts 17, verse 16 Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was, spe- he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods of the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have, poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom 
also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, there are three things, three movements this passage makes that I want you to see with me. First, in verses 16 through 21, we'll consider Paul's initial engagement with the Athenians in the synagogue and the marketplace. And we'll see this as the, the, the thing that brings him before the Areopagus. Then second, in verses 22 through 31, we'll see Paul's oration in the midst of the Areopagus. And third, in verses 32 through 34, we'll see a threefold response to Paul's message. So we'll see him out in the open, in the marketplace and synagogue. We'll see him in the Areopagus, and then we'll see a response to what he says there in these three movements. First, then look with me at verses 16 through 21, where we see Paul engage the Athenians in their synagogue and in the marketplace. Walking about the city, we're told that Paul is, uh, rather we're not walking about, but Paul walking about the city, we're told that he is provoked in his spirit as he sees rampant idolatry in Athens. And so as we've seen him do many times before, he enters the synagogue and he begins to reason with the Jews and the devout persons there. Luke adds that he would also spend time each day in the marketplace with any who happened to be there. All who would listen, Paul would speak with them. Some of them belonged to these uh, philosophical groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I'll admit, it's a bit easy for me to get these two groups a bit confused. Um, it's easy to forget who they were and exactly what they, they taught. Here's my attempt at a short version of it. Uh, the, the, these two groups were generally opposed to each other on, on what constitutes goodness or badness. What makes something good and what makes something bad? They had different answers and different grids through which they answered those questions. According to the Epicureans, pain was something to be avoided. Pleasure was something to be sought. Really, the goal ultimately wasn't mere hedonistic pleasure, but it was the elimination of desire, because for Epicurus, desire, the longing for something, was a form of pain. And so you sought to meet that desire in order to eliminate it, in order to eliminate pain. Pain was bad, pleasure was good. The Stoics, however, saw virtue and vice as the grid through which they should view the world. Pleasure was a vice, and so should be avoided. Now, I think it is helpful to understand how these two groups thought, and what was similar and what was different about them. I think we can see, at a, if, if you were to take a really, really deep dive into Paul's address, that he is speaking to each of these groups in particular ways. But here's what I think we really need to take away from this passage in, in how Luke is presenting Paul's audience. He is speaking to a very intellectual and philosophically minded culture. In fact, as J.C. Ryle said of it, Athens had the most intellectual, civilized, philosophical, highly educated, artistic, intellectual population on the face of the globe. Here was the very best wisdom of the world at the time. So the point is that the Athenians were thinkers. 
They like to comp- contemplate, to muse. They love to debate. They love to discuss ideas, and especially new ideas. And so that's his audience, and, and, and Paul is teaching them about Jesus and the resurrection, and Luke summarizes their response in this way. Some of them mocked, called him a, a babbler. What does this babbler wish to say? But others thought, well, he seems to be speaking of foreign divinities, and so we should hear more from him. But as usual in a such setting like this, there were some that were interested, some that were not. But even of those who were interested in his message, it's important that we understand what seems to be driving their interest. What does Luke tell us in verse 21? He says that the Athenians, they were obsessed with anything new. They would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. And so it wasn't that they were purely interested in the the substance of what Paul said, but merely in the fact that he was bringing them some new and strange thing. And so they, they bring him before the Areopagus to present this new thing to be examined formally. So that's our, our first point here as we consider uh, sort of the setup for the main course, which is Paul's speech before the Areopagus. So look with me in the second place, verses 22 through 31, where we see his address. He opens with an acknowledgement that his audience is full of religious men. Their city is swamped with objects of worship. In fact, they're so religious that they have an altar for the unknown God. Just in case they had missed one out there, they wanted to cover their bases and give that God some respect. Now, some have taken Paul's words in verse 23, where he says, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. They've taken those words to mean that Paul is giving some kind of credibility to them. He's saying, yes, you've been worshiping the true God just by the wrong name or something to that effect. But if you take his his speech as a whole and you think about what he's really communicating here, what he's doing is highlighting not not any part of their worship that was in essence right or correct, and it was that there was some small piece, like a mere name change, that needed correction. In essence, he's arguing that their worship was, in fact, wrong. Theirs was a false religion. It was marked not by knowledge, but by ignorance. Paul is pointing out to the Athenians that the very, he was pointing out the very weakness of their worship that they themselves unknowingly declare with this altar to an unknown God. This is Athens. We just said the place of wisdom and knowledge. And yet, despite all of their knowledge, despite the wisdom of the city, despite their philosophers, there is, even they acknowledge presently, a God who is unknown to them, to whom their worship is due. And Paul says, in fact, it is the only true God. And so he uses their ignorance as a starting point to proclaim to them the God who made heaven and earth. 
and all contained therein. He says, this God, unlike the gods you serve, cannot be contained by temples made by human hands. Now, that phrase, it does not live in temples made by man, does it ring any bells? Well, if you've been with us as we've worked through Acts, it probably does. Maybe you're thinking, ah, yes, that is what Stephen said. That's what Stephen said just before they stoned him to death. And Paul would have heard that, and so perhaps Stephen's words are ringing in his ears. Right? Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1-2, through Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen summarizes that passage in his sermon saying, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And so Paul seems to have that passage in mind, but he also seems to have Psalm 50 in mind. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world in its fullness are mine, says the Lord. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Or as Paul put it in verse 25, God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. Of course, there's Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Paul's statement that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything? Of course, there's the Genesis account. God made mankind in Adam and then He remade them in Noah. Consider Deuteronomy 32. Picking up on what happened at the flood. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Paul says to the Areopagus, God made the world from one man and He fixed the places of their dwelling. But then He tells them that God ruled the nations in this way in order that they might search for God. And actually, He says He's not so far from them, but is in fact very close. So I want to come back to this point at the end, but for now, we just notice, Paul doesn't quote any Scripture before the Areopagus. And yet, he is clearly immersed in it. And the truth of Scripture is on the tip of his tongue at every moment. He is conveying to them the truth of God's Word and bringing it to bear in his evangelism of the Areopagus, even if, as we'll see, it's in a very tactful way. But then he does quote some of their own writings to make the following point. In these quotations, he essentially wants them to see that you are created by God and for God, and apart from Him, you can do nothing. In fact, even your own poets have acknowledged that we are God's offspring. Even though that line, rather, in Him we live and move and have our being, being from 
or that indeed we are his offspring, there's a reference to Zeus. So he's not equating Zeus and the one true living God, but he says even, even in your ignorance, you, you get some small pieces of this right, but the problem ultimately, he says in verse 29, is you've got the order backwards. You've got it all wrong. God is not made in our image. We are His. We are His offspring. And yet, in your undeniably false religion, he says, you have suppressed that knowledge and corrupted it in unrighteousness. And so he calls them to repentance. Verses 30 and 31. Paul says, Previously, God overlooked the times of, re- of ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What on earth does that mean? It's, a, it's sort of a tricky line. It's, it's not something that we really see stated exactly like this anywhere else. There's a variety of takes on what Paul means here. But I think before we really look at any of that, I want to read Ephesians 3, 4-6 to 6 for you. And I... I want you to listen to what Paul says there and, and think about this phrase, this God overlooking the times of ignorance in light of what Paul writes to the Ephesians about the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, 4-6, Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the gospel of Christ Jesus, or sorry, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So in past generations, Paul says there, it had not been revealed to the Gentiles that they were fellow heirs through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Mystery, as Paul uses it there in Ephesians, uh, or really anywhere else in the New Testament, doesn't mean some unsolved, confusing puzzle. It means something not yet revealed. So in other words, God left the nations in ignorance regarding their status as co-heirs. Previously, but now he has made it known. That's the mystery revealed. That's what Paul, I believe, is saying here. He makes a similar claim in Lystra to to those Gentiles there back in chapter 14. Interestingly, there they, uh, they mistook Paul and Barnabas for two old gods. Here in Athens, they are thinking that he's introducing them to two new gods. But what does he say in Acts 14? He says to them that in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So these phrases, overlooked the times of ignorance, let the Gentiles walk in their own ways, it would be wrong to think that what it means is that God was giving them a pass. That God was simply overlooking their sins 
because they were ignorant. Rather, God overlooked the ignorance of the nations and allowed them to walk in their own ways instead of revealing to them the mystery of Christ crucified to unite all peoples in one body through the message of the gospel. And yet, even then, Paul tells the, uh, the folks at Lystra that even then, God did not leave himself without an, a witness. Now, Paul says in Romans 2.12 that those who sin without the law perish without the law. Because, as, we, as he says in Romans 1, that God, what he has revealed in creation is enough to leave sinners without an excuse. So God isn't overlooking these and giving them a pass. They perished without the law. Here's what we need to get. It's not this. God, God let, them, let it slide because of their ignorance, and only now is He holding them accountable. That is not what He's saying. What He's saying is that God had, for the most part, left the nations in their sins, but now that Christ has come, the boundaries that marked out all the nations from one another, and in particular from God's chosen heritage, Israel, those boundaries now mean nothing And He offers His salvation to the world and commands all people everywhere, not just those in Israel, to repent. And what is it then that has brought about this change? Well, we've said it. It's the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul says it is because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man that He has raised from the dead. And we have assurance of this coming judgment because He raised Him from the dead. The resurrection is proof positive that judgment is coming through the raised man. And so, get while the getting's good, right? Repent, turn to the Lord, Paul says. The resurrection of Christ and His subsequent enthronement as the cosmic king that took place on Pentecost when He poured out His Spirit on the Jews in Jerusalem and extended that kingdom in Acts 8 and Acts 10 and following, that moment, that enthronement, revealed that what was kept from generations past has now been made clear. And that's this. God has one people from every tribe, every people, language, and nation. And now God is extending mercy well beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem. And so He offers this Christ. He offers this freedom. He offers this hope to the Areopagus, encouraging them to repent. And yet, sadly, almost everyone in the audience, it seems, missed the point. Though gladly, not all. Let's look in the third place then, verses 32 through 34. We'll see the response. There's a threefold response here. The first group, outright incredulity. They mock the whole thing. The second response is one of mere philosophical interest. 
The third, saving faith. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others heard of it. And as we saw Luke mention in verse 21, they were all too happy to hear more from Paul. They wanted to talk more about this new thing. The problem was that before long it wouldn't be a new thing and they wouldn't care much more about it. They, they cared nothing for the substance of what he said. They only enjoyed the novelty of what he said. The, the, this interpretation of um, the, the, the second half of verse 32, but others said we will hear you again about this, was not, was not gospel interest. It wasn't, yes, tell us more, Paul, how we may be saved. The, the interpretation that that's a, a phil, it's a mere philosophical interest is seen from what happens next. What does Paul do? He left. He went out from their midst. And then verse 34 begins, but some men joined him and believed. And then he names Dionysius and Damaris. So some mock the resurrection. Some are intellectually, philosophically interested in, in it, but they they aren't interested in submitting themselves to Jesus, to trusting in Him fully for the salvation of their souls. And some believe and join Paul. Mockery, sophistry, and belief are the three responses to the gospel message in Acts 17. And of course, that raises the question for us. What response are you making to the gospel message? To the, the message of the resurrection of the cosmic king? What is your response? Are you a mocker? Do you hear the, the message that God raised a man from the dead, is going to judge the world by that man, and so you better draw near to him while there's still time and think, that's nonsense. If that's anyone here this morning, be warned, friend. God is going to judge the world through His righteous King, Jesus. And so I entreat you, and God commands you, according to Paul, be reconciled to this King while there's still time. What about the second group? Maybe you're here this morning, you're not mocking anything that, that you hear, or when you read your Bible, you don't mock it. But perhaps you have an undue fascination with novel things. You're kind of like the Athenians. As long as it proves to be intellectually stimulating, you don't mind talking on and on about it endlessly. You'll listen to anything so long as it's new and fresh. You get bored easily with the old paths, with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so you're constantly craving something more. Perhaps you're more like these Athenians than you'd like to admit. So the sad thing is, Paul has nothing more to say to you. Except what has already been said. Repent. Believe. But of course, what about those of us who have joined with Paul? What of us who have joined with Dionysius, with Damaris? 
who believe. A couple points, a few, couple lessons, and then we'll be done. First, consider Paul's heart for the lost. His spirit was provoked in him, verse 16, when he saw that the city was full of idols. When Paul sees Athens buried underneath the weight of its idolatry, he experiences a great distress over their condition. Like Henry Martin said of Muslim Persia in the 19th century, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if He were to be always dishonored. Dear Christians, do we share that desire? Commenting on what lessons we learn from Paul in this passage, John Stott observes that if we do not speak like Paul, it is because we do not feel what Paul felt. And this is because we do not see like Paul. Brothers and sisters, do we live in a society any less buried under or swamped with idolatry? I would submit that we do not. We do not live in a less idolatrous society. Hard to say if it's more, but it's surely just as idolatrous. But either way, Can we look around at the idolatry in our land and see them, detest them, and speak out against them with boldness? Imagine the boldness that it it took Paul not only to, to do this in the synagogue and in the marketplace, but then to be brought before the Areopagus. Right, there's some debate about whether there was this was a like a trial or, or mere formal presentation. It's probably a little bit of both. They're not necessarily looking to string him up and imprison him. But there's something very formal and serious about this presentation. What courage did it take for him to say, you guys are worshiping in ignorance. Let me provide you with knowledge. A Jew telling the Athenians, here is knowledge. Can we be like Paul with the heart for the lost. But as we look at when we talk about idolatry, it would be criminal for me merely to say, look out there at the world around us and hate those idols. If I didn't also say, let us look first and foremost at the idols of our own hearts. Let us start there. What idols bury you? What idols bury me? Let's start there and then not fail to continue to look out into the world around us. So that's the first thing. Notice Paul's heart, but I also want you to notice his his method. How does Paul engage with the Athenians? Well, at least when we get to verse 22, it seems to be slightly different than the way he normally engages with folks. Though it's not all that different from the way that he engaged with those at Lystra. 
when he spoke with Jews or devout Greeks, when he was in the synagogue talking with people who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, what does Paul do? Well, he makes ample use of the Old Testament Scriptures. He does so obviously indirectly. He quotes it liberally. But he doesn't do that here with the Gentiles in Athens or with those in Lystra. Now, in both places, he clearly has scriptural truths guiding his words and his interaction. But he doesn't blast them with passages from the prophets with with which they would have had no familiarity. He meets them, you could say, on their own turf. And yet, he calls them to move beyond where he meets them. And he explicitly proclaims here in Athens the message of Christ. So how do we think about how we should engage unbelievers today? We must take into consideration what they know, what they don't know, what they believe. What do they think about the Bible? It matters in the way that we would approach them. And yet, regardless of what they think, the message of the Gospel is indispensable to our witness to them. If Paul had left off at verse 29, it would have been an incomplete message. We must proclaim the resurrection of the King and we must call sinners to faith and repentance. Sometimes it's through overt, clear, and obvious use of the Bible. Sometimes it's in more subtle ways where As we saw Paul do, the truth of the Bible infects our message and our words, even if we don't always explicitly quote it. So we call them to repentance. Faith in the King. And thirdly, very briefly, speaking of the King, we would be remiss not to mention once again the advance of the kingdom. Here, Paul is again in a new place, taking the gospel to the unreached, and there are those who respond in faith. It may not be uh, truckloads of people, right? It seems a few. Two people worth mentioning by name and a few others. But they were there. And as we'll see in Acts 18, God has people out there. Sometimes in places, it's just a few. But the gospel extends. The gospel moves forward. The kingdom marches on, and it does so, we need to acknowledge, through the faithful witness of the servant of God. We said Paul was courageous. Yes. And that matters. Because what if he had been quiet? And not spoken up. Not taken the risk. What of Dionysius or Damaris? What would they have heard? Well, they would have heard nothing from Paul. But as we see, Paul is courageous for the Lord. He speaks the truth. And God blesses that. And the kingdom marches on. I pray that we would be used in such a manner.